So Luke 9, um, we're at the very beginning of Luke 9. Let's go ahead and pray one more time. Father, thank you for for our family and brothers and sisters in Christ that are here and visiting. And I just, I, I pray that we would all um, be edified and built up through, both through going through your word and by your spirit and just in fellowshipping with one another. Um, I just thank you for them making the drive down here and um, just pray for safe travels as they go back. But I also pray for safe travels as we go through your word, that we would um, we would go through it accurately. We would go through it um, in, an, in an anointed way that uh, your spirit is able to use any words that come out of my mouth, um, that it would build us up and, and edify us and correct us where we need corrected and encourage us where we need encouraged. Um, and ultimately, I, I pray that we see the love of Jesus um, through the text. So uh, be with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'll just read since it's only six verses. There we go. Um, okay, so Luke 9, and I really wanted to get way further in because there's some awesome stuff in Luke 9, especially some stuff that's made it into some rap music, um, like Luke 9.23. But, yeah, Luke 9.23 is not a popular one in America, but it's a it's a good one for us to remember as, as Christians. But um, for now, we're in Luke 9. 1 through 6. So it says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So that's that's as far as we're going to get. I really thought this would be like, seriously, like a five-minute teaching, and then I'm going to get on to the feeding of the 5,000, and it's going to be awesome. And But this is as far as I was allowed, I feel like, by the Holy Spirit to get. So... Um, just for your understanding, I guess, and also the fact that we talk about this a lot when we go through the book of Luke, but Luke is the, the only book where he starts out by saying, here's my purpose in writing. And in Luke, um, chapter one, verses one through four, he says, um, I'll just read it. I always say, I start to quote it and then I'm like, no, I'm just going to read it. I'm going to give enough respect to the word to not botch it. Um, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he's writing to give this guy Theophilus certainty. He wants to build up this man's faith. He wants him to be assured that the things that he's heard and learned and knows about Jesus aren't just fairy tales. They're not just made up. So Luke, Dr. Luke, went in and did very careful research. Um, they say based on the way he wrote and the, just the vast amount of details that he gave, um, it's impossible for it to be a, a plagiarized thing. Because um, 
because it, it lines up archaeologically. It lines up um, with everything else as we know as it happened in Scripture. Um, he gives details that people used to contest, and then all of a sudden they'll dig something up and like, oh, I guess Luke was right. Um, but the other aspect of it is that he he says um, he's it for some time past to write an orderly account for you, and so Luke goes out of his way to to set as good as he can as a guy who's coming in afterwards and in basically interviewing um, to set up an orderly account. So he's writing these things in order, as opposed to if we read like in Mark. It's kind of like, oh yeah, this happened and this happened and this happened. And it's, it's a very action-based, really not talking a ton about the teachings of Jesus, more about the actions of Jesus and not necessarily in a specific order. But Luke goes out of his way to write an orderly account. So with that in mind, the cool thing is, is that when we read a story like, I hate using the word story, when we read the account of what happened, because this is a real event, um, we actually can find the same account from a different perspective in Mark 6 and in Matthew 10. And so he, he gives these details. It says he called the 12 together. So I'm not going to make any assumptions that people know who the 12 are. The 12 would be the 12 disciples. Um, and the 12 disciples are not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of the disciples are listed in the Gospels as writers. That would be Matthew or Levi and John. But, um, you know, the 12 disciples, they've already been selected and called out. We covered that before we started recording these things. Um, but now he's doing something different with them. He's grabbing the 12 guys, the 12 main disciples, and he's, he, um, he called the 12 together. Then he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he calls them together, ultimately, we'll see, to send them out. Um, but it's important to notice that because we know this, because of Matthew 10, we know that he, he sent them at this point only to Jewish villages. We wouldn't know that if we didn't overlay Matthew 10 with Luke 9. Um, so he's only sending them to Jewish villages, which is going to make sense in about verse 5 or 6. But in Mark, he tells us that he sends them out in pairs, two by two. So there's 12 of them. So he splits them up into six groups of two. Did I do my math right? <laughs> okay. So he splits them up into six groups of two, according to Mark. He just says it sends them out in pairs, two by two. Um, so because we're able to overlay, which I love trying to do, sometimes it causes a little confusion, but then we just need to back up and go, well, is this impossible? Like we looked at it last week to where there may have been confusion about... Um, Jairus's daughter being raised and Matthew says he said one thing and Luke says he says another thing but it's possible for him to have said both things so it's not contradictory it's just a different person giving a different um, remembering of what took place all that is to say when we lay them on top of each other we get to get all of the details that they went to the Jewish villages and they went out by pairs so he says he, he, he uh, called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Um, first off, like just this section, these first six verses, it, my, my initial response as I was studying was this is kind of like a pretest for the disciples. They're, 
Jesus hasn't died yet. He hasn't resurrected yet. He hasn't ascended yet. And he hasn't given the Holy Spirit yet. He's given them a chance to, okay, they don't realize it, but he's not always going to be physically with them. So he's sending them out away to have that chance to be um, doing the work without him physically being present. Um, so in a way, I see it kind of as a pretest like that. They're learning to trust by doing. Um, and I think that's super important. We can talk all day theology. We can talk all day about faith. But until you're actually doing it, then you're learning to do it by doing it, you know. Um, it's like the difference between reading a book on carpentry and building a house, you know. It's one thing to say, oh, I know all the ins and outs of carpentry, but if until you built a house, what good is your knowledge? And at this point, they're getting a chance to kind of get that pretest and get out there. Um, I see here it says that in verse 1, it says that he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now, up to this point, Jesus is the only one doing any of these things. So Jesus has already, we've seen in the book of Luke, we've seen him cast out demons. Um, he's already met the demoniac over at the Decapolis. Um, he has already cured multiple diseases. Uh, he healed in the, just the last chapter. He healed the woman um, who had the issue of blood. And then he, he healed Jairus' daughter, raised her from the dead. Um, so up to this point, it's only Jesus has been doing this. Now he transfers the authority that he has and the power that he has and says, I'm giving you what I have to, to go out and do these things. Um, I, I wrote this, down this quote from Warren Wiersbe, and it's only a partial quote, but I, I really like the way you word it. He says, power is the ability to accomplish the task and authority is the right to do it. So he gives them the power to do it he, they have the ability now to do it. And then he gives them the authority to do it, saying, now you guys have the right to use the power I'm giving you to do this. So um, he, it says, I ended in the middle of his quote. It says, and Jesus gave both to his disciples. So I, uh, a cross-reference verse, which actually, um, when I was able to go to that East Coast Pastors Conference in uh, a couple weeks ago and, and listen to Jim Simbola teach, his main text that he taught from was First Thessalonians five, uh, excuse me, First Thessalonians one five, and he says, um, Paul says to the Thessalonians, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, and then it goes on. I believe because we're going to see later in this same section that they're sent out to preach, but they're given power to to um, give authority to the message that they're preaching. Um, his message goes forth with authority. Their message goes forth with authority because of the power that he's given them to display. Like this isn't just words. This isn't just speech. Um, their main goal was to proclaim the gospel, right? It says, excuse me, verse two, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So their main goal is proclaiming the kingdom of God. And that's been something I've been wrestling with trying to explain. Um, it's something that happens a lot in the New Testament, or especially in the Gospels. They talk about this kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And my best understanding of it, and I'm willing to be corrected, is the kingdom of God is what they're proclaiming is the king is here. 
right? Jesus, when we say Jesus Christ, it's not his last name. Um, we're declaring who he is. Christ is the where we get comes from the Greek word Christos, which is the same as the word Messiah or Mashiach in Hebrew. So he's the promised anointed one that was promised clear back in Genesis chapter 3. And later on, um, when David has the promise given to him, and I don't have the cross reference, I think it's in Second Samuel, where David's given the promise that there will be um, someone of his lineage sitting on the throne forever. That's a promise of the Messiah. And what they're proclaiming when they proclaim the kingdom is the king is here. Jesus is that Messiah. He's the promised one. And some of the promises of the Messiah were from Isaiah that he would heal and that he would cast demons out and that he would make the blind be able to see and the lame be able to walk and, and so on. And so that message is going forward saying, Jesus is this Messiah. We're proclaiming that we know who he is and we're telling you he's here. Get ready. Um, now, ultimately, they weren't expecting, although later on in this chapter, Jesus flat out blank, point blank tells them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I will rise again. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's just confusing. I mean, it's as plain as day. But, you know, I personally believe that the Lord didn't quite allow them to understand it at the time. All that is to say, they're going out saying, hey, we know who the Messiah is. The Messiah is here. And with that, they're given the power to heal. Um, the other cool thing that I think about the healing is one of the things that um, they're declaring when Jesus is saying Jesus is the Messiah, the King is here, is the King is is in healing. Healing is a result of a, uh, living in a fallen world, right? Not healing. Diseases are a sin, uh, result of living in a fallen world. Um, sickness and death are results of living in a fallen world. And Jesus is undoing those things. You know, he's able to undo those things by healing. He's able to undo those things by raising Jairus' daughter from the, the dead and, and later on raising, raising Lazarus from the dead in John. But he, uh, I believe that that's really a foretaste of what's to come that his, his full kingdom isn't established here on earth yet. But when he was here, he was doing those things as like both a display of his power to validate his message, but also as a, like a foretaste of when I'm, when I'm sitting on my throne, when my kingdom is fully established on this earth, there's going to be, what, what does it say in Revelation 21? No more pain nor death, nor sorrow for the form of things that pass away. It says he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so um, I I personally believe that partially it's just like I'm, I'm giving you a glimpse of what it's going to be like when I'm sitting on the throne. And I, I'm not saying he's not sitting on the heavenly throne, but he hasn't taken his earthly throne yet, right? We know that Jesus is coming. The return of Christ is very orthodox Christianity. Okay, so that is the intro. <laughs> um, I also like to re remember that in John fifteen five it says that Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. Now what does he say? For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus saying, here's the power and here's the authority, these guys wouldn't be able to go out and do any of these things, right? He's still the source of that power. 
so they can't go bragging on themselves at which they start to kind of do later, but um, he corrects them. They can't do anything apart from him, and I can't do anything apart from him. It's important for me to remember that as well, that he's still the source of my power. Oh, I can try and operate in my own strength, but it's going to go so far and it's going to fail. It'll fail because God loves me enough to say, look, I'm the one who's supposed to be doing this. I'm the one who's supposed to be doing that for you. Stop trying to to do that. Um, You can't. So... Like I said, intro over. So he says in verse 3, he says, And and he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. A tunic is like a shirt. Um, And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. So what he's teaching them, I believe, is full dependence. Um, He's saying, look... I don't want you to take anything with you. I want you to depend on me for everything. In a sense, excuse me, he's saying, I want you to practice what it is that we've been proclaiming. Matthew 6, he's already given the Sermon on the Mount at this point. And um, in Matthew 6, 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more valuable value than they? And then he goes on, but he, um, let's see, jumping down to verse 31. He says, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after these things and your father, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Those are very, very, very solid verses, but he's making them do it. They're not just verses for them to um, talk about. They're verses for them to do. They're having to rely on God to provide all the things that they need. Um, I, I like this because for me, I don't know how many times it's been like, oh, I would do that for you, God, but I don't have this. I would do that, do that for you, God, but I don't have that. And I think that this gives us the, the uh, well, it removes the excuses of saying, I don't have it, so I can't do it. <laughs> so um, I love this verse in, in Psalm 50, verse 10, which can be totally twisted, and I, I'm not condoning twisting this verse. But he says, God says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So you've heard people say, I God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, that comes from Psalm 50, verse 10. Meaning, what is God, I mean, what am I going to give to God that he doesn't already have? All, but also, how can I make excuses for not doing it when my God owns the cattle on a thousand hills? And if he is calling me to do something, he's going to provide for me to do it. The key is, if he's calling me, and at this point in this story, Jesus has clearly pulled his disciples aside and said, I'm telling you, I mean, this is a direct command. Go out there and do this. Um, So that's that's not like an excuse for just like, I'm just going to do whatever I want and God's just going to have to deal with providing for me. The key is having that relationship with God to where we know that he's calling us to do something. So it says, oh, this could be looked at as a pattern. Like, okay, so I'm never to take anything with me ever. 
But later on in the book of Luke, right before Jesus gets arrested, right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and prays, this interesting little passage happens. Let me uh, let me read it real quick. So Luke twenty two thirty five, which is almost like um, how would I say it? Here's the here's the example of Jesus sending them out and saying, "Don't take anything with you." But in Luke twenty two, right before he gets arrested, he, he says, "And he, that's Jesus, said to them." When I send you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. So what's he referring to? He's referring to Luke 9. When I sent you out with nothing, did you lack anything? And they said, we didn't lack anything. And he says, it says in verse 36, and he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It's enough. So, in other words, they're like, He says, I, Initially I sent you out in Luke 9, I sent you out with nothing. But now I'm telling you, if you've got stuff, use it. And it's okay to use it. And if you need to sell something to get something else that you need, use that. But I'm sending you out. I want you to go. You didn't lack anything. And we learned the lesson that you lacked nothing when you went out with nothing. Now use the resources that you have to do something. So it's not like a blanket rule that we can go, oh, well, I'll always go out with nothing. And no, the point is, is that if God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, then what I lack, he can make up. And what I have I should use for his kingdom I I don't you know I don't think that there's like a hard and fast rule in either direction Um, it's really something that we like to do where we make formulas for certain things and Jesus totally destroys all formulas because every time we think that we're supposed to do something exactly like this then he goes and changes a little bit you know he never healed the blind guy the same way one time he spit in the dirt and made mud and rubbed it on his eyes and said, go wash up. But he only did that once, but he healed many blind people. (laughs) So we can't make formulas for how things operate with Jesus. Um, We can basically go by what we see in scripture. Anyways, verse four, um, I'm going to try and work my way through this quicker. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. All I see here is Don't be trying to finagle your way into better situations. When you come to a town, the person who says, oh, you can come stay with me and I'll help feed you. I'm glad that you're here telling me about the Messiah. The first person that accepts you, whether they're poor or whatever, if they show, if they extend hospitality, you accept that person's hospitality and you don't try and work your way into a better situation in that village. Be accepting of the hospitality that's extended to you. Um, And that's really all I see. I don't know that I'm making a principle out of anything, but I think that's what he's telling them. Um, Verse 5, he says, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, you've probably heard people use this. I'm going to shake the dust off of my shoes and really show them a thing or two. Or I'm going to, I've heard of people talking about when they leave a church over a dispute that they'll shake their shoes because of this verse or whatever. Really what Jesus is talking about. So remember from Matthew, he sent them into Jewish villages only, right? And the Jewish 
people, the, the very pious Jewish people, if they had to pass through a Gentile city to get from point A to point B, when they got to the edge of that city, they would turn around and shake the dust off their shoes because they don't want to carry any of that Gentile dust with them. Um, and they don't want to bring any of that Gentile dust into Jerusalem. And so that was their way of being like, as far as I'm concerned, I don't want any Gentile stuff coming with me. I'm, you know, I'm going to be as pure as I can when I get there. And that was how they did it. But what Jesus is telling them is when you go to a Jewish village and they don't accept you, I want you to do what they do. I want you to take and shake the dust off from your shoes as a testimony against them to show them, you know what, you're rejecting the Messiah that's here. You're rejecting the King that's here. And just like the Gentiles need a Savior, you need a Savior too. And you're rejecting that Savior. It's, it's like this, kind of like a theological slap in the face. You know, you guys think you're all, all that because, because you are trying to avoid having Gentile dust on your feet. Guess what? You're just like the Gentiles if you're rejecting Jesus. And remember that as people who were once Gentiles, non-Jewish people, as soon as we are born again into the kingdom of God, we're not Gentiles anymore either. Although possibly in Israel they would consider us Gentiles still, but we're born into the kingdom of God. It talks about in in Galatians, it talks about in Ephesians, it talks about through a lot of the epistles, how it talks about it in Colossians, how we were once Gentiles, but now we've been born into the kingdom of God. It says in Galatians that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ, right? And the Jew nor Greek is Jew or Gentile. You know, Greek was another interchangeable word for Gentile. So we're um, basically the new division, the new divide is that we need to be born again into the kingdom of God, whether we're Jewish or whether we're Gentile. Um, but it was a real testimony against them when they shook their, their shoes off. Um, it says in Acts 18, 6, um, talks about how Paul, when he went into the synagogue, he was discussing who Jesus was and discussing Jesus Christ with people. And when the Gentile, or excuse me, when the Jewish people in the synagogue didn't like what he was saying, he, it says he, he shook his coat out. Let me read it. It says, um, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And that kind of caused a little riot, but, and it was no quiet riot, by the way. Um, so Paul, in a sense, practices. There's another spot in, in Acts where he actually, literally, him and Barnabas picked their shoes up and shook their shoes off. And like, and you know how symbolic certain things are with certain um, groups of people. You know, you go to a different ethnic group. Um, this is probably like a terribly stupid story, but I can remember being in England at this, um, I think this was when we were at the castle. So I was in high school. We were visiting this castle, and there was a group of French uh, like fifth graders, you know, like that age. Um, they were also on the same type of a, uh, student type visitation of this castle. And they're doing this gesture to us, which they're all laughing. And I have no idea. I mean, I've never seen this gesture before in my life. And so, you know, terribly, some of the guys on our team were giving them an American gesture back <laughs> It wasn't me, um, but I just thought it was funny that, like, culturally, like, you see 
they think it's hilarious, but we have no idea what they're even talking about. There's some symbolic thing involved in whatever it is they're, the hand gesture they're giving us, but it doesn't insult me because I have no idea what we're even talking about. But to a, to a Jewish person to have the, the shoes shook out, it would have been a, an extreme insult. Um, and so that's kind of one of the other things as I've been rereading the Bible and going back through the Bible and especially in like the gospels where it's giving a narrative account of what took place. I'm not Jewish and I live in America in 2016. (laughs) So I don't always understand the customs of how things affected different people, which, um, you know, we talked about earlier. If you go visit India or if you go visit Colombia or you go anywhere else in the world, you have to have some kind of idea of don't insult them by doing this. Um, I could tell another story, but I won't. I opened my mouth and didn't know I was doing anything wrong. So, um, but the point is, is that um, it's it's really important in order to get the full understanding of Scripture to kind of set ourselves back and go, this is first century Israel. That's when this is written. We need to remember that and not make it, you know, 21st century America. It's first century Israel. Let's remember where where and when this was written. Okay, so going back, it says that... Um, oh, verse five. So wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. I just, I see this and I can make this very short. The Bible puts a responsibility on people receiving or rejecting God, receiving or rejecting his message. That's not a new thing. That's that's one of the main threads throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and New. We have this responsibility of, am I receiving what God's giving or am I rejecting what God's giving? And ultimately, the ultimate receiving is when we receive the gift of salvation, the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, the atonement that he earned for us by faith. Do we receive that or do we reject it? And Jesus puts the responsibility on the people. Hey, if they reject you, if they don't receive you, then shake your shoes off and walk away. Um, We are responsible for how we receive the message that's given. And I'll just leave it at that. There's a responsibility to how we receive. Um, So let me turn this over. Okay, so the last thing, and then I would just have a couple applications and then we'll be done. But the last thing is in verse 6, I see that they obeyed. So Jesus spends five verses saying, he pulls them together. This is what I want you to do. This is the authority and power I'm giving you. And in verse 6 it says, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. If Jesus is our Lord, then we're going to do what he says, right? This wasn't like an optional yeah, Jesus, I'll get around to that whenever I feel like it. They were his disciples. And as his disciples, when he said, I, I'm giving you this authority and power for a reason. I want you to go out and use it. I'm giving you this message for a reason. I want you to go out and proclaim it. Literally, the word is to herald. Like you're declaring something from the king, like like the herald in like Shakespeare times would have that trumpet with the little flag on it. He'd blow the trumpet and then he'd make thus saith the king. Well, that's what's going on now is he's saying, go out, proclaim this. I want you to say thus saith the king. He is here. 
The kingdom of God is here. Prepare yourselves for Jesus because he's here. So um, they obeyed him. And I find that important. Um, Acts 5.29 is just one example. It says, but Peter and the apostles answered. Now this was when they were being questioned by the leaders of Israel. We must obey God rather than men. Obedience is a part of the gospel. Um, it says in Romans 6.16, Do you not know that if, you're, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Basically, when we obey our sin, we become slaves to sin. When we obey Christ, it, it leads to righteousness. Um, there is a certain obedience and I don't believe obedience negates grace. I just, I believe that it's important that they went out because Jesus said, go out, and they did it. So um, now I just have a couple little applications that I kind of pulled away. Um, one of the cool things that was brought to my attention um, as I was at that conference was that there's something like, there's an important thing to teach in the Bible is so what's the important thing to know? Sometimes like if you, you've studied to teach, you end up finding this obscure random fact and you think, Oh, that's the greatest thing in the world. I need to tell them, but it's really not helpful for living. You know, it's not like this great, you know, sometimes if you overly get into the Greek or you overly geek out on things and you just think, Oh, I'm going to go share that with everybody. What does that have to do with my life right now? Really? Thank you that that's really neat um but i i try and look at this through uh, the lens of how does this apply to me so the first thing is that i saw is that god god is honored when we trust him this was an exercise in trusting god he said go out with nothing you're gonna be fine i'm giving you power and authority i'm giving you a message to declare go and so I see that God is honored when we trust him. He's our father. We can trust him. Remember, faith is synonymous with trust. A child that has a good relationship with their earthly dad trusts him. I mean, that's like a, that's almost like a litmus test of how, how is that kid, it, is, does the little kid trust his dad or not? <laughs> if he doesn't trust his dad, then there's, there's a relationship issue. But when we trust our father in heaven, it's honoring to him because we're, we're showing him that we trust him and we're displaying to the world a fearlessness because we have a fear of God. Um, a couple little verses just to go along with that. Romans eight fourteen says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. When we're led by God, and obviously we know it was written in first century, so sons of God includes daughters of God. I don't think we need to change translations. We can all understand that. <laughs> um, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Another verse is 1 Peter 1.17 says, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds and conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So I didn't need to read the whole verse. If you call on him as Father, we're allowed to call on him as Father because Jesus allows us to call on him as Father. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, without trust, it is impossible to please him. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists or that he is, it says in the King James, and that he rewards those who seek him. It's an honoring thing to trust God. It's impossible to please him without trusting him. The last verse for this is, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Um, when we trust God, it, it honors him. Uh, the, last, the last little bit in that is just to remember that sometimes in obedience to him, we move forward not knowing the outcome, but knowing who it is that we're trusting. So we can move from one city to another, not necessarily knowing how things are going to work out, but knowing that God is calling us to do that thing. And we don't know how it's going to work out. We haven't necessarily been given a promise of that particular outcome. But we're exercising faith in that we know that God called. And so we're going to obey not knowing how the rest is going to happen. But knowing who it is that we're trusting. Second Timothy, um, at the end of Paul's life, um, in Second Timothy he says in verse 1, um, sorry, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, which is why I suffer as I do, but, am I, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. He's about to die. Paul knows he's about to die, and he says, look, um, let me reread it. I'm, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. When we trust him, we can, we can step out because we know him. Um, the second application would be just to know the message, know the gospel. They were sent to declare the gospel. But if we don't know the gospel, and believe it or not, all Christians are supposed to be able to not necessarily be evangelists, but be able to explain something about the good news of Jesus to people. We should know what the gospel is. Another challenge that was given to me while I was there at that conference was just read in the book of Acts. Go, go through the book of Acts. And maybe one day I'll do a, just a teaching on what I end up gleaning out of this because I'm actually trying to do it. Go through the book of Acts and only read the presentations of the gospel. When the early church presented the gospel, when Peter was given the opportunity, how did he present it? When Stephen was given the opportunity, how did he present it? When Paul was given the opportunity, what words did he use? And what elements? That obviously, they're talking to different people, and each conversation is going to be a little bit different, but what what things were that were present when they were presenting the gospel. Um, and so it's, it's going to be an interesting study, but I would challenge each of us to be able to know the gospel, know what it says and know why it says it. So that when someone says, why do you keep going to church? You realize that um, Steph Curry is playing in the NBA finals right now. You could be watching that instead of listening to somebody talk about the Bible. Um, Yes, that's true. Steph Curry is playing right now. But but we could, we could explain, no, I've placed more value in the Bible than I have in a, in a human trophy. I've placed more value in this because this is what Jesus did for me. I was lost. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and I'm a prime example of someone falling short of his glory. It says... Um, in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. So if all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, 
then I deserved that death. But Jesus, it says in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But Jesus died for me while I was still in sin. All three of those elements, Romans 3.23, 6.23, and 5.8, talk about the same thing. We have a sin problem. I'm guilty. The wages are death. But God demonstrated his love and that while I was still in my sin, Jesus died for me. And it says in Romans 10.9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. One of my favorite verses for explaining the gospel is is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. He was guiltless. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There was an exchange that took place on the cross, and that exchange was, this sinful person sitting in this chair should have died for his sins. And the sinless one who came down from heaven took his place. And he became my sin. Everything I've ever been guilty of, he became. And he was punished for it. And when he was buried, he rose again. But when he rose again, he rose again. I love this. He rose again without my sin. So when he resurrected... Though he became my sin when he died, he resurrected in new life. And he resurrected without my sin so that my sin is buried and dead and gone. And so that he exchanged the life of this sinful person for the life of a righteous, righteous, the righteous son of God. Um, and the simplest, the simplest definition for the gospel is found in 1 Corinthians 15.1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I believed as you, excuse me, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried according to the scripture, and then he rose again according to the scripture. I I left one of the verses off, but that's what it says. That this is the gospel. That according to the scripture would be the Old Testament, meaning Jesus was foretold. What were they going out and proclaiming here in Luke 9? The king is here. That's how we know that there's a difference between Jesus and Buddha. That's how we know there's a difference between Jesus and Muhammad. That's how we know there's a difference between him and Joseph Smith, Charles Taze Russell, Mary Baker Eddy, name any other person, Confucius, any of these people, the two main differences are this. His life was foretold in very, very detailed fashion in the Old Testament, and he didn't stay dead. By those two facts, we have confidence that Jesus is who he said he was and that he would live like, like it said he would that because of the scriptures, we can trust. So that's the gospel. I always know how to complicate things, but it's something that we should be able to, to say and to present to people. And here's the last application. What is the main point of what took place, besides just them trusting, is that they were sent. They were sent out. Um, think of it this way. Jesus was sent. I've said this before. This was 
when I got a chance to teach when I was in Oregon, but Jesus never asks us to do something that he wasn't willing to first do himself. Jesus was sent. Um, John 3.16, we know that one, right? That's like a Bible verse, memory thing that kids learn in like VBS. But it's huge. There's a reason they teach that a lot in VBS because it's important. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent his son. That's what it says in John 3. Jesus was sent. Romans 8, 3. So skipping over from John 3 to Romans 8, 3. For time's sake, I'll just... It says, For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God sent his Son. So that I've established that. Jesus was sent. Not only was he sent, but the, the apostles were sent. What did we just read? Actually, it says when in this passage, when he says, and when it says, Verse 2, and he sent them out. The word was apostolos, which is where we get our word apostle. So this is where they're, they, in a sense, go from being disciples to apostles. But apostle just means sent one. Someone who's sent. And the apostles, they were sent. John twenty twenty one says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, there we see Jesus being sent, even so I am sending you. And he was talking to the disciples. Um, the Holy Spirit was sent. John fourteen twenty six. Oh, I'm going to have to read this one straight from here. I tried doing my little cheat sheet, and it's not going to work for me. Um, John fourteen twenty six says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and that's not right. That's Luke. That's why. Wrong book. I'm like, hmm, this is not contextually what I thought it was. So, 14:26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Father's sending the Holy Spirit, right? That's what he's promising there. Uh, John 15:26. But when the Helper comes, we just established that the Helper is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And that's Jesus. So, the Holy Spirit was sent. And we know the ultimate fulfillment of that was in the book of Acts, chapter 2, when the church was born, right? But here it is. Here's where... As J. Vernon McGee would say, the rubber meets the road. You have been sent. We have been sent. Matthew 9, verse 38. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the har- to his harvest. Let me read it again. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you know who those laborers are? That's us. 
Now, we don't go without prayer, and we're also to be ones who pray for laborers to go into the harvest. But I believe personally that each and every believer is, is one of those laborers. We don't go out prayerlessly, but we go out. And I believe that we're sent in um, Mark thirteen fourteen, and this is directed at the disciples. Jesus said, it, Jesus told them, it said that he, he called them to be with him and to send them to preach the gospel. The first thing they needed to do was be with him, but then to be sent. And that same thing applies to us. We need to be with him and then be sent. This will be like the absolute last. Isaiah 6 is like one of my favorite passages in the world. Um, actually, while my wife was pregnant, we discussed the name Isaiah. She rejected it immediately. Not that if there's anybody listening named Isaiah that it's a bad name. She just didn't think that it, it went with the rest of the kids' names. But anyways... I really wanted the name Isaiah because of Isaiah 6. And Isaiah 6, Isaiah is at the very beginning of his prophesying and of his ministry. And it says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And he said, Here I am, send me. So Isaiah gets this vision where he actually sees a vision of what's taking place in heaven. And what's taking place in heaven is worship. And when he finally gets a, a full glimpse, at least in this vision of God, he loses it. He recognizes how sinful he is. He can't believe <laughs> I mean, just, he's in awe. And his response was to confess his sin, right? And then he hears this conversation, which I believe the conversation is God the Father speaking with God the Son. And he's he's able to hear this conversation. The voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. See, when Isaiah was able to catch a glimpse of God he was able to fearlessly and he didn't know what does it say it says who shall go for us who shall I send he doesn't know where he's he's being sent to he has no idea he just sees God and is like wherever you want me to go I will go I will go where you send me that's but that stemmed from having that vision having that time with the lord having be having seen the lord 
Um, this is kind of how I summarized that that part. Spending time with the Lord helped him to see the Lord, to hear from the Lord, to surrender his will to the Lord, and then be sent out by the Lord. But where did Isaiah get sent? Back to the people he was already prophesying to. It wasn't like he had to leave his hometown. He actually, he was sent to, back to work, essentially. So we can, we can leave here and we can get sent back to work. But we can go with a greater purpose, knowing that we've been with the Lord and we know that we're sent people to go be with the Lord. Second um, Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who through us Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, that's you and me, the ministry of reconciliation. Each one of us has, has this ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That means he was fixing a broken relationship. That's what reconciliation is. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The gospel is that message that there's a broken relationship. Our sin has severed our relationship with God, but God wants it back. And he sent his son to get it back. Verse 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's how we're being sent out, I believe. There may be more to that sending, but ultimately that sending includes this. We've been given this ministry of reconciliation. We've been given the message of reconciliation, and we become ambassadors for Jesus. An ambassador is someone who lives in one place, representing another and we live on earth representing the kingdom of heaven asking people imploring people it's we implore you on behalf of christ we beg you on behalf of christ we we it's it's such a strong appeal i can't even think of the right word to describe it on behalf of jesus be reconciled to god that's that's how we're sent we're sent with that message but we don't go without like isaiah he was obviously in prayer he had always obviously been spending time with God in order to just catch a glimpse or a vision of God like this. But then he spent time with the Lord, and then he saw the Lord, and then he heard from the Lord. He surrendered his will to the Lord, and then he was sent by the Lord. And I think that that, that to me, that applies to us, that we can be sent, even if it's just across the street or across the fence, we can be sent as an ambassador. Now, God opens doors that no man can shut, and that's what I pray for. I pray that he gives me opportunity to share the gospel because I can't create these opportunities. I fail at these opportunities. My foot goes in my mouth faster than anything. Um, but yet he, he's been faithful to not always when I want it and not always when I'm expecting it, but give opportunities to be an ambassador for Jesus and declare this ministry and message of reconciliation so um i think that's that's how that's why i didn't get any further that's it's long enough but i think that that's important that if we trust god we'll honor him if we know the message of the gospel we'll know what to say and if we acknowledge that we're sent it makes life not boring you know we're not just waiting to go to heaven we're not just yay i'm saved and now i'll wait we are ambassadors for jesus and we can take that very seriously. Paul closes something out in the book of Ephesians, and I thought this would be a good one to close out. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might. Father, thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you that you aren't sending us alone. Lord, we read how you you would send the helper and you did. Um, Lord, we go with the Holy Spirit in us and through us, and we ask that we be filled and empowered by your Spirit as we leave, as we go, both fellowshipping with believers and being ambassadors to unbelievers. God, thank you for my friends that came, and I pray that you give them just a special blessing, if I can ask that, to, um, to pour your Spirit out on them. Give them... <laughs> Give them grace, an extra measure of grace, and help them to grow in that grace. And um, just strengthen all of us that we're able to walk being ambassadors for Jesus in this world. It's not easy, and we've got brothers and sisters that die as ambassadors. Um, Lord, prepare our hearts to be with you in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.